Good morning, everyone. This is May 16th, 2022, in the year of our Lord. We are the DOLW Podcast 3. We are from the Diocese of Lansing, a watcher group. This is watcher group 3. And uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to read today, Randy Engel's The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church. We're reading from Volume 4. And, um, but before we do that, let's consider what Bishop Earl Boyer of the Lansing Diocese has told us to do this year. We're, um, to stir up one another to love and good works. So with that, um, let's continue these, uh, stirring each other up. Just want to give us a short reminder on our Catechism of the Catholic Faith, um, out of My Catholic Faith by Louise Lavor, Lavor. Moral. We're going to turn to page uh, 58 and 59 and consider um, the Catholic teachings on pride. Pride may be called the mother of all vices, the most, for most sins can be traced to it. From pride arise ambition, vanity, presumption, disobedience, hypocrisy, obstinacy, and sin. For pride is the beginning of all sin. He that holdeth it shall be filled with maledictions, and it shall ruin him in the end. That's uh, Ecclesius 10.15. Never suffer pride to, re- to reign in the mind or in thy, in thy words, for from it all perdition took its beginning. That's Tobias 4.14. Pride was the sin of our first parents who wanted to be as great as God. It was the sin of the king Pharaoh. He was so proud that in spite of the miracles Moses worked, he refused to to be convinced. For this God hardened his heart. Exodus 9.12 That is, God permitted him to close the window of his soul against the grace of the Holy Ghost. because Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected thee. 1 Kings 15.26 Number three, the proud man tries to attract notice and praise, strives for honors, distinctions, and other worldly favors. He is overconfident in himself and despises the assistance of God. Pride was the sin of Lucifer. The proud man pretends to be greater than he is and tries by all manner of means to attract the praise of others, even using false humility to do so. God hates pride and punishes it severely. He often punishes secret pride by withdrawing his assistance from the proud man. And deprived of God's aid, the proud man often falls into grievous sins, leading to his humiliation. The beginning of pride of man is to fall off from God. Ecclesiastes 10.14 God resists the proud. 1 Peter 5.5 Everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. Luke fourteen eleven. Thus the proud King Herod was eaten up by worms and died. Thus the proud Roman Empire fell and became nothing. Our Lord, our Lord pointed out the pride in the heart of the Pharisee and praised the humble publican. If we, however, despise sin as beneath us, that is not pride but a virtuous self-respect.
A decent regard for cleanliness and neatness is not vanity. The ambition to exceed in good things, as in studies, in order to make the best use of God's gifts, is to be commended. God wishes us to be his excellent children. Okay, so with that, we're going to begin our reading of Randy Ingalls, The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality, and the Roman Catholic Church. We're in Volume 4, The Homosexual Network in the American Hierarchy and Religious Orders. We're going to begin today on page 911. We've been in Chapter 15, and we continue with Chapter 15. Reflections on the Cook-Bernadine Affair. The following scenario of the Bernadine-Cook Affair, based on a preponderance of evidence in the case, is put forth for the reader's consideration. Excuse me while I take a drink. Friends and classmates of Stephen Cook from his elementary and high school days recall that Cook exhibited characteristics commonly associated with homosexual learnings. Although there is no evidence that he ever acted on these impulses prior to his enrollment at St. Gregory Seminary, sexual predators like Harsham have a special aptitude for honing in on vulnerable youth like Cook. I believe that the priest carefully groomed young Cook over a period of time, making overt force unnecessary. In a technical sense, then, Harsham could rationalize that he was not guilty of rape or physical assault since Cook consented to the acts. Harsham fed Cook's immature ego by telling him how special he was and convincing him that homosexual acts with priests was a privilege, not a, not a sin. Little wonder that Cook was reported by fellow seminarians to be full of himself when he entered the seminary after graduation from high school. It must have been a bitter pill for Cook to swallow when he realized that Harsham had exploited him and that he did not have a vocation for the priesthood after all. By this time, he was already caught up in alcohol, drugs, and homosex. Cook sought solace in the arms of the homosexual collective. At what point Cook hooked up with Bernadine is still unknown. The Winona seminarians who received settlements from Bernadine and other prelates report that in the 1980s they saw Cook in Bernadine's company. Harsham may have acted on his own or may have pimped for Bernadine as Cook's as Cook charged. In any case, I believe that Bernadine's claim that he did not know Cook was blatantly false. At some point in his life, Cook was Bernadine's willing sex partner and travel companion. Then, in 1990, Cook found himself in dire straits. He learned he was HIV positive. He was in desperate need of money to buy drugs that might extend his life. The airways were filled with news of clerical pedestry. Cook recalled his sexual seduction and initiation into homosex by Harsham at St. Gregory when he was a young man, where Cook's recollections connected to repressed memory syndrome. They may have been, although my opinion is that they were not. Cook was in his late teens when he met Harsham, and true repressed memory is almost always associated with trauma inflicted at a very young age. 
My guess is that Cook's memories of St. Gregory were never far from his consciousness, especially after he learned that he had AIDS and had time to reflect on the events that led up to the terrible reality. It was at this time that Cook made up his mind to sue Harshman and the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, adding Bernadine to his lawsuit may or may not have been an afterthought, but it proved to be his ace in the hole. Involving Cardinal Bernadine would certainly boost any settlement reached with the archdiocese, and he desperately needed money. The fact that he had had a voluntary sexual relationship with the cardinal during his adult life would ensure a certain degree of protection from any countersuit. Bernadine's East Superior Street lawyers might consider bringing against him. It would also protect Cook's lawyers from Rule 11, a provision of federal of the federal rules of civil procedure that permits a federal judge to levy financial penalties against lawyers who bring frivolous or insupportable lawsuits. In the end, perhaps Cook figured that Cardinal, Cardinal Bernadine owed him that much. And that's where we end this chapter. There is a couple pages of notes um, for all of the research that was done on this chapter, which was a lengthy chapter. We're going to go on to chapter 16, Homosexuality in the Religious Orders, beginning on page 919. Introduction. We Christian brothers as a religious community are one of the few existing organizations that provide a stable setting for working out homosexual love. The existing organization of brothers has not been accepting of homosexual expression in the past. There is, there is still a problem of structuring the organization to allow for this variation. Nonetheless, it would be necessary to exclude a person because he had developed a homosexual love for someone within or without the organization. For homosexual people who might wish to associate with us, we could provide aid or at least least protection from repression. There is no immediate solution for the person of homosexual orientation. An organization of religious brotherhood is a natural bridge for the meeting of straight and gay worlds. This was by Gabriel Morin, FSC, 1977, Christian Brothers. Then it goes on here. For Jerome commenting on Galatians 5.9, a little heaven says, Cut off the decayed flesh. Expel the mangy sheep from the fold. Lest the whole house, the whole paste, the whole body, the whole flock burn, perish, rot, and die. Arius was but one spark in Alexandria. But as that spark was not at once put out, the whole earth was laid waste by its flame. This was taken from St. Thomas Aquinas, Summa Theologiae. It is one of truly tragic marks of our age that many religious orders, once the glory of the Roman Catholic Church, have become vehicles for the destruction of the Catholic priesthood and the epicenter of the homosexual collective within the church. That's pretty profound. I digress here. I'm going to read that one more time. It is one of the truly tragic marks of our age that many religious orders, once the glory of the Roman Catholic Church, have become vehicles 
for the destruction of the, fam- of the Catholic priesthood and the epicenter of the homosexual collective within the church. The charge that homosexual, the, excuse me, the charge that the homosexual collective in the United States took root in Catholic religious institutes and congregations before the diocesan priesthood can be verified from a number of different sources, including statements from both opponents and proponents of the homosexual collective. For, for example, former oblate priest Richard Wagner, who went from a religious to a producer of homosexual porno films, affirmed in a 1981 study, Gay Catholic Priests, that the homosexual movement in the Catholic Church began in religious orders, not the diocesan priesthood. In 1982, the Homosexual Network, Father Ruda, documented the important role that male religious orders have played in embracing, sustaining, and financing the homosexual collective. These orders include the Jesuits, Franciscans, Dominicans, Salvatorians, Benedictines, Christian Brothers, Xavian Brothers, Holy Cross Priests, Paulists, Capuchins, Oblates of St. Francis de Sales, and Oblates of Mary Immaculate. At least 57 U.S.-based religious orders, institutes, and congregations have publicly supported the pro-homosexual activities and programs of the Catholic Coalition for Gay Rights and or New Way Ministry. Five Catholic religious orders and institutes operating in the United States are covered in depth in this chapter. The Order of Friars Minor Franciscans, the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, the Order of Preachers Dominicans, the Society of the Divine Savior, Salvatorians, and the Society of St. John. There is also a short report on the Legionnaires of Christ. Before examining specific religious orders, however, let us look at the special nature, structure, and rules of religious orders that distinguish them from the secular or diocesan priesthood with which most readers are likely to be familiar. I'm going to get a quick drink here. Okay, let us continue. Religious Orders and the Evangelical Councils Religious orders in the Roman Catholic Church are institutes of consecrated life, distinguished by the perpetual observance of the evangelical councils of perfect chastity, voluntary poverty, and obedience to lawful authority, and the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. The oldest of the religious orders are the monastic orders which took root in the East under St. Basil the Great, the years 329 to 379 A.D., father of Oriental monasticism and St. Benedict of Nursia, that was in the years of 480-547 A.D., father of Western monasticism. Dominating the Middle Ages were the mendicant orders of St. Dominic and St. Francis, which practiced the evangelical counsels of the- and theological virtues within the framework that embraced both the contemplative and the active spiritual life. 
There were also the military orders that dated from the 12th century whose members, while observing all the essential obligations of traditional religious life, had as their main objective the armed defense of Christ and the Holy Land. And finally, the Hospitaller orders, which whose members were vowed to perpetual chastity and the service of the sick and the poor. Until modern times, the foundation underlying all religious life was that man should deny himself, not realize or actualize himself. The vows taken by candidates for religious orders are not mere negations, but a positive affirmation of Jesus' invitation to the first apostles. Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's from Mark 1, 17. In addition to religious who bind themselves by perpetual or permanent vows, there are some religious institutes commonly referred to as societies of apostolic life, such as the Oratarians of St. Philip Neri, the Paulists, and the Supplicants that do not profess vows, although they live the common life of religious. Some orders offer a fourth vow. The Jesuits, for example, have a fourth vow of direct obedience to the Pope, for special missions. Besides the common end of religious life that makes it a school of perfection, each religious order has a special charism or calling connected to a particular ministry in the church, such as the care and occupational training of orphans, that's the Christian brothers, education, which is the Jesuits, preaching, Dominicans, and the contemplative life, Benedictines. Missionary enterprises for the propagation of the faith have traditionally been entrusted to religious orders such as the Holy Ghost Fathers and the Mary Knoll Fathers. In times past, religious order priests and monks, like nuns, were always instantaneously recognizable by their unique habit or style of dress. Religious bind themselves to live in community in accordance with the rules and constitutions ratified by their order and approved by the Holy See. They owe their obedience to their provincial or prior, who in turn is directly responsible to the superior of the order, who usually resides in Rome. All recognized religious orders fall under the authority of the sacred congregation for religious and secular institutes. Ultimately, they are responsible to the Supreme Pontiff, who has the power to call a religious order into existence or suppress it completely. Religious may hold ecclesiastical offices in the church, including bishoprics, bishoprics, cardinalates, and even the office of supreme pontiff. However, there have been occasions when the head of an order has opposed the selection of religious to higher office outside the order, as the practice tends diminish potential sources of leadership, inspiration necessary to maintaining the vigor and integrity, and integrity of the order. It has not escaped public notice that Pope John Paul II has placed religious at the head of two of the largest dioceses in the nation, Archbishop Sean O'Malley of the Order of the Friars Minor Capuchins, Capuchins in Boston and Francis Cardinal George of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate in Chicago. In an attempt to heal the two war-weary seas that have been plagued by clerical of sexual abuse and systematic cover-ups, 
by ecclesiastical authorities. I'm going to get a quick drink here. Okay. I lost my spot. Can't take my eyes off it for a minute. Hold on. Okay. No, it's not okay. I've totally lost my spot. So. Hmm, maybe this is a good place to end. And we'll begin on page 920. Uh, so sorry for this, but um, that's what you get when you have a grandma reading to you. All right, so with that, um, I want to give you a little thought of Fulton Sheen from his 365 Days of Reflection. Pleasure is of the body. Joy is of the mind and heart. And in that we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Until next time.